Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you do for us. We are so grateful just that you care about us enough that you would even give us the chance to worship you, that you even give us the chance to hear your word, Lord. We humbly come before you today as we dive into your scriptures. We just ask that you would help to soften our hearts, that you would help to let us know what it is that you want us to do in response to your scriptures, Lord. Father, I ask that you would make my words clear, that you would make my words concise, that you would give me the words to say so that everyone here listening to your word would know and understand you, and ultimately that they would grow to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And we pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. All right. So this morning, I want to take the opportunity to let you all be a part of the message. I want to ask you your thoughts on a passage of scripture. I want to ask you, um, I want to put this passage of scripture up on the screen here. I want to read it. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. And the scripture is, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Very popular verse. Most people know that scripture. But I want to open the door to you all and ask you, what does that verse mean? Not a trick question. Like, What does that mean? What do you think when you hear that verse? Ask and it will be given to you. You've got a spiritual understanding of this verse. Okay, good. I like that. I like that. What else? Ask and you, it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. I always think that that's more of like my own self, personal faith. Okay. I always use you as a starting place. Okay. Oh, that's really good. I appreciate that you noticed that. Whatever it is that you need that Jesus is talking about here, you have to do something first. You have to ask first. You have to knock first. I like that. I want to I ask the question one more time in one different way. What does this verse not mean? <laughs> and, and how do you know that? Because you have eyes and you live in the real world and at some point everyone here has prayed for something and God has not given. At some point everyone here has asked for something and God said no. Okay, that's good. I really appreciate, um, I appreciate that because this is one of those verses where if you're not careful, you can get a little bit confused. Because if you read it on the surface and you say, ask and you shall receive... And then you ask and you don't receive, you start to wonder, like, well, what's that all about? Was Jesus lying? And he wasn't. So, 
That's going to be the focus of today's message is this verse. And we're going to look at our passage in Exodus in order to get a little bit more clarity on this verse. Hopefully this will all make sense as we move on. But to bring everyone up to speed, at this point in the story in the book of Exodus, God has delivered the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. He's brought them through the Red Sea. Last week we looked at this beautiful song that they sang in praise to God where they, they praised him, they worshipped him, they declared their faith in him, and they declared that he was going to lead them. And the point of last week's message was very simple. The point of last week's message was the Israelites sang a beautiful song to God, so we should also sing beautiful songs to God. They did a good thing, we should copy them. Like if you, if you missed it last week or you wanted to skip church last week, that was the whole message. The Israelites did something good, we should do that same thing. In a nutshell. Could have saved everyone half an hour of your time and I just said that because that was kind of but that's okay. That will be the one and only and last time in this entire series of the book of Exodus where I say the Israelites did something and we should do what they did. Because from this point in the story, moving forward all the way into chapter 40, what we're about to witness is a train wreck. Like, like, if, if the book of Exodus would have ended at that song, it would have been an awesome, really happy, feel-good song about how a bunch of sheep herders put their faith in God, and God delivered them, and the end, and they all lived happily ever after. And it would be a really cool sto story displaying the Israelites' faith. It would, I mean, it would be one of those things that would make a good Hallmark movie. But it's not the end. This is only the beginning. And so I want to pick up on, in Exodus 15, I want to start in verse 22, right after the song is over. Hold on to those happy thoughts from that song, because we're going to need them, because it's, it's, I'm telling you, this is going to be a train wreck. In Exodus 15, verse 22, we read, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. I know, I put those way too small. I apologize. I meant to fix that. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place was called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? So three days. It took them three days after praising God before they went right back to whining and grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses. And they're thirsty. They want water. And if you're, if you're a savvy reader, you might be thinking to yourself, you might think, well, you know, three days in the desert is a long time, and they were probably really thirsty. They were probably at this life-or-death situation, so dehydrated that they, they, maybe they had good reason to grumble against Moses. And I want to tell you all from the outset, they were fine. First, first of all, three days is the amount of time that they asked Pharaoh to go in the very beginning. Remember, they went to Pharaoh and said, we need to take a three-day weekend to do our sacrifices. That was the original plan was just three days. So they were prepared for three days. 
They were planning on a three-day trip. They had provisions for a three-day trip. So, so don't get mistaken then thinking that this story is a story about how God miraculously saved the Israelites from the verge of death. Because that's not what this story is about. This is a story about a bunch of people who wandered out in the desert, got thirsty, and then complained about it. That's what this story is. But in spite of their grumbling, in spite of their complaining, in spite of their whining, God hears them and he answers them. They ask and he answers. But, but I want you to pay attention on how this plays out in verse 25. It says, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and it became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you will pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 strings, springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. So, so here are the questions I want you to be asking yourself as you read this passage. Number one, I hope you would be asking yourself, what was the whole point of the, the stick in the water thing? If there was an oasis of 12 springs and palm trees just up the road, what was the point of making that bitter water drinkable? Like, why did God go through all of the effort of doing that when there was an oasis up the road he could have just led them to? And I think in order to answer that question, we have to answer the other question is, what does verse 26 mean? We read verse 26 one more time. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. What does that mean? What does it mean, I am the Lord who heals you? Because the Israelites, they didn't have any diseases. They didn't have any illnesses. At least the Bible doesn't tell us that they did. And as is as is often the case in Scripture, when God does something that doesn't quite make sense to us, usually he's trying to teach a lesson. He's trying to get a point across. He's trying to show them what they need to be healed of. And we've already established that they didn't need to be healed of their dehydration because they were just fine. I promise you they were fine. They weren't on the verge of death. What they needed to be healed from, what they were suffering from, was a lack of contentment. That's why God took the time to take this bitter water that they were not content with, that they didn't want to drink because they didn't like the taste of it, and he made it sweet for them. He made it so that they were able to drink it. He helped them along with their contentment by making a bitter situation a little bit more bearable. Part of ask 
and you shall receive is being able to recognize when God has already provided you with something and you just want more. Recognizing when God is trying to show you contentment with what he has already given to you. When I, one of the biggest fears that I had when I decided to become a minister was, was, this, was the cut and pay that it would be. Because you have to understand, before I decided to become a minister, I had a pretty good gig. I was a foreman. I was doing landscape work and, and, and had a nice house before we moved to Nebraska and, and all of that stuff. And we were really comfortable. We're not rich or anything, but we, you know, we had a mortgage and a car payment and a pretty big backyard, and we had a lot of stuff. And when we took the leap, when we said, you know what, I'm not content with this life because I'm not serving God, we decided to get rid of all of that self stuff and devote ourselves into service to God. And one of the things that we prayed for was that God would provide for us. We said, God, please provide for our needs. Do all of this stuff. And the funny thing is, if you just put a number on it, if you just looked at the spreadsheet, we're doing worse now than we were before. With less money, less stuff, less cars, less everything. And yet, we have more. We're more comfortable now with less than we were when we had more. Because one of the ways God provides for us is by teaching us contentment. By teaching us, oh, you know what? We didn't actually need all of that stuff. We didn't actually need that big backyard. We didn't actually need that house. Come to find out, we already had an excess that we didn't need. And the difference was Christ. Having Christ in your life, devoting yourself to Christ, allows you to take a bitter situation and make it sweet. It allows you to focus on contentment. So as we, as we move on in our story, what we're going to see is the kind of the same idea repeated three different times in a row. Like if you've read these passages about the water, and then the manna, and then the water from the rock, you're going to notice that it's pretty much the same story told in three different ways at three different times. The point is the same. And I want to take this opportunity to teach you guys something really, really cool about the Bible, about the way we read the Bible. When you and I tell a story that has a point, that has a moral, we always put the moral of the story where? At the end of the story, yeah. That's how we tell stories. That's how we get a point across is we'll tell you a thing and then we'll tell you another thing. And then the point of the story is at the end. That's how we tell stories in our culture. So if I tell you the story about the three little pigs, well, the pig who built his house out of bricks is at the end because that's the point of the story is work hard and it'll pay off. But stories in the Bible are a little bit different because in that culture, in Hebrew culture, they always put the moral of the story in the middle. Do you know that? Almost always, like 90% of the time, if you see 
three stories in the Bible, and they're all really similar, or five stories or seven stories, the one that's going to be the punchline, the one that's going to be the point, is always right in the middle. So that's a tool you can carry with you as you're reading. The book of Mark is another example. He does that a lot, where you'll have a story at the beginning and a story at the end, and the one in the middle is the one that God really wants you to focus on, because that's going to direct you to the point of the story. I say all that to say it makes it difficult to write sermons when, when God puts the moral of the story in the middle because you all expect me to give you the point at the end. It kind of makes it tricky. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this middle story and we're going to save it for last to help you get the effect that the Bible is trying to get here. And so what I want to do, I want to jump ahead to chapter 17, and I want to read about the water from the rock. And then we're going to come back and read about the manna, because that's the main point of these three passages. So go ahead and jump to Exodus 17, verse 1. And we read, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? So right off the bat, we see that they really didn't learn their lesson about contentment, did they? Like the whole thing with the stick and the water, the Israelites didn't get the point. Because straight away, they're already complaining about water again. We see that they're not relying on God. They're not trusting in God. They don't have adequate faith in God to provide for them. But this time it starts to get to Moses. Moses starts to freak out because he's not able to keep his people under control. He's unable to help them with their contentment. And in verse 4, we read, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So once again, God provides for the Israelites. He sends Moses out to strike this rock, and water comes out for them to drink. But what's, what's really fascinating about this passage is I want to take a look and read what the Apostle Paul said about this passage. Sometimes the best interpretation on the Bible is the Bible. So I'm going to read what Paul says about this passage. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to... Be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, he's talking about the Israelites, our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses 
in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. So he's talking about this passage. And then he says, and that rock was Christ. If you offered me a million dollars right now to explain what Paul meant when he said that, I would not be able to do it. I'm just being completely honest. I don't understand that. Like if you said, Josh, what, is, what does Paul actually mean when he says that rock was Christ? I'm, I don't know. Was Christ physically present? Was it a metaphor? Was it a spiritual thing? Did, was there some breaking of the bounds of space and time? I don't know. I honestly don't know what exactly Paul meant. It's a mystery to me, and it's meant to be a mystery. But I know that he said it. All I know is when Paul read the story that we're reading today, he got to this part and he said, yeah, that rock right there, yeah, that's Jesus. That rock that provided water for the Israelites, yeah, that was Jesus. And then... To kind of get the point here, a little bit further down, at verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And then in the very next verse... This is important. He says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Your Bible might have those two verses broken out, but I think they go together. You ever, you ever hear the phrase, God won't give you any more than you can handle? Anybody ever heard that phrase? Yeah. Well, that's, that's only a half-truth. The more biblically accurate saying should be, God won't ever give you more temptation than you can handle so that you will believe in him. That's a big difference. That's a huge difference. God is concerned with your physical needs to the extent that it will strengthen your faith. God provided for the Israelites in the desert because he knew that in that moment, that's what they would have needed to have their faith strengthened. When God provides for us, it's because he knows that that's what we need in that moment in order to strengthen our faith in him. But the flip side is true also. When we ask, and God says no, it's because he's confident that it will not break our faith in him. God is confident. God will never provide you with more temptation than you can handle that will cause you to fall away from him. And so our, our, very, our question we should be asking ourselves when we're thinking about ask and you shall, shall receive Let's read the verse that comes right after ask and you shall receive. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give you a snake? 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The point is, God doesn't always give us the gifts that we want. He always gives us the gifts that we need in order that we might have faith in him. And so, in our passage in Exodus... God is providing water from the rock because he knows that they need that in order to have faith. I want to go back now and I want to read our middle passage. This is Exodus 16, verses 1 and 2. Let me go back here. So this is where... The Bible is trying to bring it home for us. Exodus 16, 1 and 2 says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate food, all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. <sighs> Told you guys it was a train wreck. Keep an eye on the, on the timeline here, by the way. On the 15th day of the second month, they're complaining about food. Remember, they left Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. So we're like, we're like a month out. And they're already complaining about food and grumbling because they're hungry. Now, again, you might, just like the stories with the water, you might be tempted to sympathize with the Israelites and think to yourself, well, you know, a month is a long time without food. They were probably starving. They were probably really hungry. Maybe they had good reason to complain. And yet again, I want to remind you all, and I want to ensure you all, they were just fine. They were not dying. They were complaining. And if you don't, if you don't believe me, I want you to turn back to Exodus 12, 38. Is when they're leaving, it says many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Okay, show of hands, who's ever had a, a beef in the freezer? How many meals can you make with one beef in the freezer? How many meals can you provide for a group of people if you've got cows and sheep and, and goats and, and all of that stuff traveling along with you? So, yeah, they were fine. They were complaining. They didn't want to slaughter their own animals, and so they just complained about it. So hopefully by now I've adequately demonstrated that none of these stories is about God miraculously rescuing them from death. That's what the Red Sea story was about. This is a story about them complaining. 
Nevertheless, they said in verse 3, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out in this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Okay, real quick. One more Bible tool I want you guys to carry with you. Everything in God's word is true. But that does not mean that everyone in God's word is truthful. That's important. Because if you confuse those two concepts, you might be tempted to think that the Israelites are the good guys here. You might be tempted to think like, oh, wow, we should have faith like the Israelites because they gave up pots of food in Egypt. They gave up being able to eat whatever they wanted. They left the comfort and safety of having all the food they could ever want. After all, the Bible says that they had pots of meat that they stand around and ate. The Bible says that they said they had pots of meat that they sat around. Okay? Because everything in the Bible is true, that does not mean everyone in the Bible is truthful. I believe they said it. But does anybody here really believe that the enslaved people of Pharaoh, you know, the same ones where Pharaoh was throwing their babies into the river and whipping them, does anybody here really believe that Pharaoh just gave them meat that they ate like kings? No. They're, they're lying. And instead of focusing on what God has provided for them, instead of having faith in God, instead of relying on God, they fall into the trap of comparison. Even though what they're comparing their life to is this fantasy world in their head, they're still trying to compare what they have to what they don't have. I've fallen into that trap. I've fallen into the trap of looking at my own life and trying to compare it to something else, to someone else, and thinking to myself, you know, if I just had a little bit more, if I just had what they had, I would be better off. If, if the things in my life were, if, if only they were like the good old days. Whoever likes, who likes to talk about the good old days? Yeah. The good old days. I promise you the good old days weren't as good as you think that they were. But, you know, the thing that really baffles me about this passage is that in spite of their attitude, in spite of their comparison, in spite of their complaining, in spite of their lack of contentment, God still provides for them. Out of the goodness and mercy. In verse 9, we read, Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So God provides them with and he provides them with this miraculous manna that falls down from heaven. 
And part of, part of his lesson, part of what he was trying to teach the Israelites was obedience. Part of what he was trying to teach them was faith and reliance. He gave them instructions about the Sabbath and, and all of that stuff as an act of trusting God. But that, but that last line, I will provide for you at twilight you will eat meat, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. In his wisdom, God knew that even though they, they didn't deserve this miraculous bread, even though you and I, if we were in that position, would probably just say, tough cookies, go slaughter a goat because you guys are just complaining too much. God knew that in that moment, they needed to be provided for so that they would know that he is God. So when we think about ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. And we try to reconcile why sometimes God doesn't answer and sometimes he does. Or more precisely, sometimes he says yes and sometimes he says no. The answer is simple at the end of the day. God does what he does so that we will know that he is God. You ever wonder why Jesus performed so many miracles? Think about this for a minute. The, the reason Jesus came to the earth was not to perform miracles. It was to forgive the sins of the world. And his, his miracles really didn't play a part in that, in the sense that, okay, he could have come gathered a ministry of, of people and followers with his teachings, said some things that got him in trouble, he could have died on the cross, and he could have atoned the sins of the world without ever performing a single miracle. That was possible. He could have done that. He could have lived a quiet life, never performed a miracle, never fed the 5,000, and still lived a sinless life, and his sacrifice on the cross would have been just as valid. But the reason he performed miracles, the reason he fed the 5,000, the reason he healed the lepers was so that the people would know that he is God. So here in Exodus, God's purpose was not to feed the Israelites. That's not why he brought them out into the desert, to feed them manna and give them water for the rock. That's not the reason he brought them out there. His purpose was to create a new nation, to give them the law, to create the nation of Israel. He could have done all of that stuff without feeding them. The, the Ten Commandments would have been just as valid, just as valid if God would have skipped the miraculous stuff. He's God. He lays down the law. It would have been just as valid. But he did it so that they would believe, so that they would know that he is God. And what I find really interesting about this passage, especially when we think about Jesus, when we look at that, pure, or that fingerprints layer in our pyramid, that point where we're pointing the story forward and finding Jesus, Jesus himself tells us in the gospel that ultimately this passage is about him. So if you read Mark 6, 
Jesus gathers his disciples. They go to a remote place. A crowd follows them. And then Mark 6, 34, it says, When Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So God cares for his sheep. He cares for his flock. He teaches them things. And then later on in the story, it starts to get dark. They start to get hungry. And Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with, with bread and fish. But look at how John tells the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave this part out, but John gives us this extra detail. After Jesus feeds the 5,000 people, they go to the other side of the lake. The people chase him down, and they say this to them. They say, John 6, 32. Um, excuse me, Jesus says this to the people. He says, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So again, just like Paul with the rock that was Christ, when Jesus says, yeah, that story about the manna, that was really about me, I don't understand. All I can say is Jesus said it, so I say, okay, that story is about you. I believe you. And then in 34, they don't understand it because they say, sir, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Here's where, here's where I want to bring this home. When we look at our verse, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened, and we try to understand it, we need to be mindful of our contentment. We need to be mindful of not comparing our situation to other situations. Those are all true. Both of those things are true, but ultimately, when we go to God in prayer and we ask him for things, we should be asking him for what we really need, and we should be asking him for what Jesus tells us we should be asking for. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the example Jesus gives us to ask, to ask for bread. And the Israelites... We're asking for physical bread. The 5,000 were asking for physical bread. They were both asking for the kind of bread that's here today, and then it starts to get dried out and crumbly and moldy, and it doesn't last. And if that's what you need in order to have faith in God, if you're lacking physical bread, if, you, if your needs need to be met, then ask for those things. This is not saying you should never ask God for things, because if that's what you need, then ask. But as we grow in Christ, as we develop a relationship with Christ, we start to get to the point where we understand that Jesus is not talking about that kind of bread. We should be asking for 
We should be asking for the kind of bread that says whoever comes to this bread will never go hungry. Whoever comes to this living water will never be thirsty. Ask and you shall receive. So this week, as you go throughout your day, as you ask God to support and supply for your needs, I, I ask you, what kind of bread are you asking for? Will you go to God in prayer with me? Father, we know that you give and you take away. You do with us what you will. And, and Father, we just ask that you would give us the humility we need, the contentment we need to live our lives in you. Father, we ask that you would give us the bread that we need, the spiritual bread that we need, the presence of Christ in our lives, that we will be able to go out and do your will. We ask that you would give us the courage and the strength that we need to go out and make disciples of all nations, to feed them the spiritual bread that they need. And most of all, Father, we want to thank you for what you've already given us. We thank you so much for your son Jesus and the sacrifice. We thank you for the true bread that comes down from heaven to give life to the world. We pray all of these in the name of your son Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much.